Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Page. Delighted to be joined here with the magnificent Grant Wall for, I should say, the second time, but actually the first time uh, that you'll be hearing it. He did a recording with me earlier in the week, and as uh, such is the quality of my equipment and my budget these days. It didn't quite work out, <laughs> but uh, thanks for Grant for coming back doing it again. Hi, Tim, Paul. Doing well. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. How much football do you watch? You know, I, I watch a fair amount, you know, oh, it was, uh, a, a late night last night watching uh, U.S. men's national team against Martinique. Um, I, I'm not watching every Gold Cup game like I was for the Euros uh, and for all of the Copa America knockout rounds. But uh, I am watching some of the Gold Cup and, and starting next week, I'll be watching the U.S. women's national team uh, at the Olympics. So it's going to be some interesting hours with those games starting at I think 4 a.m. here in New York yeah. City and then Gold Cup games starting as late as 10 p.m. Like someone suggested that I should go nocturnal <laughs> and sleep during the daylight hours. How do you balance that with a family life? You know, I, I, I try to be <clears throat> smart about how many games I watch. Yeah. So I, I do keep a calendar of, of all the games that are on my radar and I actually post that publicly and that helps me just to know mm -hmm. what's out there but I certainly don't watch all those games and um, you know in a weekend during the European club season I'll maybe see two or three full games sometimes more but not maybe as many as some people might think and mm -hmm. and so um, I also need to make sure that I'm on top of what's happening in the news, but right. like my work is mostly storytelling. And mm -hmm. so um, those, those type of writing projects take a lot of time. And, and so yeah. they're not totally connected to watching games either. So right. it's, um, I love this job. I love the sport. I, I kind of need to, I think, given the I was amount of hours that, that yeah. it takes. You know, yeah. but my my wife's not a big soccer fan, uh, which is kind of an understatement. And she and I connect in a lot of other areas. So I think it's sort of healthy for me that when I'm doing stuff with her, that it's not usually soccer related. Good. Yeah, you need that. Do you still love it like you always have? What's that? Do you still love the game like you always have? I do. And and <clears throat> the older I get and the more I watch and the more I talk to people, the more you realize yeah, you don't know. And, and yeah. so for me, like I try to stay curious, but it's not like I have to make that much of an effort. There's always new things to mm -hmm. learn. And, you know, here's an example as well. Like for my second book that came out in 2018, uh, it's called Masters of Modern Soccer. It's about the craft of the sport position by position. And that was a real departure for me because it wasn't really storytelling as much mm -hmm. as it was me spending time with some of the the best and most intelligent players in the sport and peppering them with questions and curiosity about how they do what they do what they're experts in mm -hmm. and i learned a lot but it was a little bit out of my comfort zone because i didn't play at a high level and here were guys that obviously did mm -hmm. uh and i hope i think if you ask those guys about their experience with me for that book and those interviews that they could see that I was curious and wanted to, sure. to learn from them about things that only they ideally could, could share with me. We've seen huge change in the American soccer landscape. 
um, even over the last 10 years, but since you became a journalist, um, uh, I'm not at a place by saying this, but you're clearly the most prominent journalist in this country in the sport. Uh, your body of work is truly outstanding. And uh, for those of you who are listening to this for the first time, I strongly encourage you to check out Grant's podcast. Uh, just a wonderful bouquet of different uh, guests that are extremely interesting and a uh, wonderful series with Freddie Adu because I think everybody in this country has tried to get an interview with Freddie Adu at one point and you were the only one that was successful and that was brilliant because it was exceptionally well told. Um, and I want to talk about his story and, 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 and uh, juxtapose that with what we see today and whether that could happen today. But before we get there, Grant, I want to ask you a quick question. What, what was it that caused you to fall in love with the game? Because when you were a young man, it wasn't like football coverage, soccer coverage was ubiquitous. It was, you know, you, you had to really seek it out. So how did you cultivate a love for the game? Save you. Yes, I grew up in Kansas City on the Kansas side. And like a lot of kids played soccer until a certain age, 13 or 14 for me, and stopped. Um, you know, by the time I got to high school, there were other sports that I was more interested in, in playing at the high school level, sure. basketball. Of course. Um, uh, I was a runner, so I did track and field and cross country. Um, and from a soccer perspective, my access to watching the sport wasn't extensive right so like in the early to mid 80s we had what was popular at the time in kansas city was indoor soccer and so mm -hmm. i was a fan of the kansas city comets indoor yeah. team and, and that was popular at the time and we would go to games and uh, a couple of times they let my team play on the field before the game and, awesome. and, and that felt great loved it yeah um but then that died down a little bit too and and wasn't as popular and and so for me, the 1990 World Cup was a huge moment because I was interested in the U.S. men's national team playing in a World Cup for the first time in 40 years. Um, I watched almost all of the games of that World Cup from Italy on Spanish language television because my family didn't have cable television, which had the English rights, and it was on Univision for free. And yeah. so... That's kind of how I, I fell in love with the outdoor game. And then early 90s, I go to college in 92, uh, and I cover the Princeton soccer team, which was coached by Bob Bradley at the time. Uh, one of his players was Jesse Marsh. And they got to an NCAA Final Four in 1993, where they lost to Bruce Arena's Virginia team and Claudia Arena. And, um, and so that's how I started to get to, mm. to cover the sport. Um, and then just little steps along the way. Like I was always fascinated with covering the sport. I liked the sport, but also the stories, there was this wide variety of stories because soccer is so global and, mm -hmm. and there's so much of it. And so I remember being an intern at the Miami Herald in 96 when they had Olympic soccer in Miami. And I, that was the first time I covered the U S women's national team and, the Brazil team that was mm. basically Brazil's 98 world cup yeah. team. Um, and then I got sports illustrated later that year and I was kind of the soccer guy. And so it kind of went from there in terms of, I still covered basketball as my full-time gig. I did soccer on the side, but I did enough of it that as the sport got bigger, I finally was able to become a full-time soccer writer in 2009. That's amazing. 
and I want to ask you about your evolution because when you first got into this, um, or certainly when I first became aware of you, which easily 10 years ago, um, maybe I, I, I'm misunderstanding here and it could be wrong, but I sensed a certain snobbery towards you uh, from your colleagues across the border in other parts of Europe as if um, you're an imposter because you're an American. Did you feel like because you were an American, you were unfairly treated? Be, uh, and obviously the world is somewhat jealous of America and their accomplishments, so that comes into it. But did you feel like you were paying a price for being an American? Um, I do think I've experienced a little bit of this, and I think other American soccer writers have, mm -hmm. is that people around the world have an idea of the United States, yeah. and um, sometimes it's a really positive idea of the United States. Sometimes it's a really negative idea of the United States. And sometimes it depends on who's in the White House for that idea right. to have prevalence. So yeah. I realize that so much of this are forces way outside of me right. in terms of like people's ideas of the United States. And soccer obviously is one area where, at least on the men's side, the US is not the best in the world. And, and so um, if you have a resentment toward the United States, one area where mm -hmm. you can kind of put, you yeah. know, use that, enjoy that soccer. is in the soccer space mm -hmm. and anyone who represents it. So um, what I would say is, is that pre-Twitter, so I joined Twitter in 2009, yeah. I didn't have a lot of interaction with sure. non-US media members in the soccer space. I certainly have a lot more since then. And there are plenty of wonderful relationships that I have with, with journalists in every soccer country that I've sure. developed over the years, which have been great. Like Twitter will sometimes expose you to maybe some media people that you haven't met in person. Sure. Basically anybody I've met in person, we get along great. Right. Like <laughs> if, it's, if, it, if it's like, if it's some opinion of mine that they didn't like, and on Twitter, and we haven't met each other, then I've, I've certainly had some negative responses. Sure. Um, I do remember during the 2018 Men's World Cup in Russia, there was a lot of, there's even more anti-American stuff than usual because mm -hmm. one, the US didn't make the tournament and two, Trump was in office. Yeah. And, and so, like, it's, it's something I try and remember even right now, like, with Hungary, for example, in mm -hmm. the Euros this summer, I think that Viktor Orban, who runs that country, is awful in that, in that whole right-wing you know, group. Yeah. But I certainly don't think that all Hungarians are supporting that. Yeah. And so, like, I, 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 there were a few times, I think, during the, the 2018 World Cup where on Twitter, I just, my response was, I didn't vote for it. <laughs> well, I mean, I... I just don't understand this thing. People don't have this nuance because when people use blanket statements like America is a racist country, so my, who are you talking about? You're talking about African-Americans, you're talking about Latino-Americans, you're talking about Cuban-Americans, you're talking about... Because America is made up of amalgamation of every culture, every nationality in the world. So when you say that, are you talking about everybody's racist? You're talking about there's some people racist? What exactly do you mean? Because I come from a place where people could easily turn around and say that place was filled with violence, which it was, but there was more to it than that. And there was a lot more nuance than that. And that certainly wouldn't be a correct image of the only thing that goes on there. Certainly there were a lot of people that were vehemently against anything like that. 
Um, and th- living in this country, to me, the caricature that's built up with America externally never really translates to what it is actually going on on the inside. And uh, politics is messy. We know that. Um, but uh, I just don't understand why people don't see that nuance that you're not the country. Yeah, no, and, and I agree with you on all of that. One thing I try to have, I guess, is some humility about where the United States is in a very global soccer space and that uh, I want to show respect for the history, for example, over the last century or more of European soccer and the traditions that have developed there. Um, you know, occasionally I'm going to have maybe some ideas about how I think something might go better or work mm-hmm. better. Um, and I think sometimes people take that the wrong way as mm-hmm. if I'm like an arrogant American. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 there are certain things I propose for how the U.S. approaches things sure. in soccer that we're not doing. Um, so you just kind of learn to have to, you know, to accept it and realize that there are a lot of benefits of Twitter, for example, and yes, there are some, some real negatives that come with it as well, yeah. but not to, to let the negatives become too negative and, and overwhelm everything. Yeah, I know we all get that. Um, let me ask you about um, U.S. soccer. And, and um, because one of the popular things to do, and maybe there was some justification for it, certainly it's not perfect, but the malign the youth system in this country as nothing more than uh, privilege versus, you know, those who don't. And if you have money, you can pay for club soccer, you're going to get all the best access and opportunities. However, how do you explain, surely Kristen Pulisic and all the young kids that are going to European top clubs are not anomalies. They're coming out of this system. Um, so is it fair to malign this system in the way we have? Well, you know, my thing with youth sports in the United States is not just about youth soccer. It's about youth sports mm-hmm. for every sport. And, you know, this is like a $15 billion a year industry now. Mm-hmm. And you've got traveling teams for really young kids to, yeah. to play, you know, their families get on planes and go with them to different tournaments all the time and all these different mm-hmm. sports and it, it strikes me as it's, it costs too much money. This applies to soccer as well. Mm-hmm. It uh, overly sort of professionalizes the sport right. at a young age and makes it less fun mm-hmm. as a result. And it also prices out yeah. uh, a fair number of communities, in, mm-hmm. especially low income communities. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, that's the stuff that I have an issue with. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's for youth sports in general in the mm-hmm. United States. Now, soccer theoretically should be a very inexpensive sport to play just because mm-hmm. of the, you don't need much equipment uh, right. to do that. You shouldn't. Um, and yet here in the United States, soccer is very much a white middle to upper middle class sport still. Um, and you have, uh, traditional, more traditional soccer loving communities, the Latino community to a large extent, that feels like they haven't been welcomed by the, so- the soccer establishment represented by US soccer and all of its different members. And there's a lot of truth to that. So I hope we become much more of an inclusive soccer community in the US, including with youth soccer. 
Uh, at the same time, when you mention guys like Christian Pulisic and these young Americans who are now playing professionally and doing very well in Europe, um, I do think that the MLS academies have done a better job in recent mm -hmm. years of not just putting money into their academies, but starting to produce more and more good players, especially particular MLS academies, FC Dallas, New York Red Bulls, Philadelphia Union, NYCFC, and there's more. Um, so that's starting to really bear some fruit. You know, we mm -hmm. just saw this past week yet another uh, Dallas homegrown player, Tanner Tessman, go to a, a team. And yeah, Venezia in, in Italy. So, yeah, you know, that's that's three former Dallas homegrowns now mm -hmm. in Syria. And um, so all that's very exciting. And uh, I think MLS finally sort of acknowledging publicly a couple, publicly a couple of years ago, you know, we're a selling league, mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to get into the, you know, in, in solidarity payments and training compensation. And you're, we're going to incentivize more the development of young players in the United States. I have to say, looking at soccer in this country, I, I finally feel like it's established roots where in the past games were like events. There was no foundation. There was no, um, there, there, there was nothing in place that was going to secure the, the game for the next 20, 30 years. We could build your own identities where, um, you know, you could turn your own stadiums into fortresses and everything else that have relevance in the same way. All other big clubs have instead of playing um, cavernous empty stadiums. And I feel like football has its own place in, and it's, Finally established, lessons were learned from the old NASL, uh, MLS, really since its inception, um, has grown and it actually has credibility around the world. Um, we see the Euro viewing figures, which are unreal. Uh, we saw what, what you tweeted earlier about Lionel Messi. I actually sent the same text to a friend with exactly the same text. I said, um, no longer is this a place for anonymity for footballers. Um, it finally feels like, I, and I'm trying to understand exactly why this is. I think video games are partly responsible for it because kids become yeah. much more familiarized by playing FIFA and other things. But it finally feels like soccer has taken root in this country and it's here to stay. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Soccer is definitely here to stay. Um, and I would argue has already surpassed ice hockey in the NHL yeah. in terms of a day-to-day, week-to-week sport interest-wise when you... But you have to remember with soccer in the United States, the interest level in watching professional soccer is very fragmented, mm -hmm. uh, more so than the other sports. And so you have to take that into account that in the US, we're watching a bunch of different domestic soccer leagues on television every week, right. the most popular of which is the Mexican league, right. it's mostly in Spanish. Uh, but you've seen the Premier League grow, you've seen the other big leagues in Europe grow, Champions League, MLS. Um, you know, this country has become one of the best countries in the world in which to watch professional Absolutely. soccer. And 20 years ago, it was one of the worst. Yeah. So that's a huge cultural change that, like video games, I think has also increased the interest of Americans, but also increased the skill level of young players when they can see this week to week and be part of this global culture of the sport. There's no... There's no stigma anymore attached to being a soccer fan in the United States, because I can remember in the 90s, there was still this giant stigma. You would turn on 
sports center on ESPN every night and they would make fun of the sport of soccer. Yeah. And, and so that's totally changed to the point where with young people in this country, it's not, not only is there no stigma, this is a popular sport. And, and so that's a good sign for soccer. It's not a great sign for baseball, which is a very, Sort of their their fans are much older. Fifty five. Um, I thought I read was the median age for baseball. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like all of these demographics are are that are changing in the United States over the last twenty years and in the twenty years to come are are going to be good for soccer as a sport. It's funny because you know I grew up. Um, my, when I came here, it was pre Lionel Bienvenu, just about. But I grew up obviously in Europe, and I remember, and this would happen before every major tournament, specifically the World Cup. And they would have a, a two, three minute clip of some British reporter walking through New York and asking people about the World Cup who were completely oblivious to it and, and given answers that they would snigger at and laugh. And I always thought that that was particularly nasty because what about the hundreds of people that did? No, I mean, this was just yeah. to me edited deliberately to to make fun of the United States. And I, I didn't, I, I must confess, I, I thought that was quite nasty. Um but that wouldn't happen today because I think there's a collective exception, uh, acceptance amongst people over there that look, they are watching MLS teams, they're seeing young American kids in their uh, teams, and they're not just at the bottom tables, bottom teams at the table. They're actually at prominent clubs making differences in big games. Um, I think Europeans have accepted that um, America is no more, no longer the joke of world football. Um, and to me, it was always just a matter of time. This country's football ma- or sports mad. And uh, once it takes open series, it will eventually improve. The other aspect of this, of course, is the growth of the women's game. And obviously, we've seen contentious issues with the USSF and everything else. Um, but are we, do, do you see a point in the future where women's football will be equivalent to men in terms of access, in terms of finances, in terms of human figures, attendance, all that? It's certainly possible. And I would argue that at the university level, that equality is there today. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I thought it was interesting a few years ago. I don't think it's the case anymore. We're like the NCAA women's soccer tournament, I think had 64 teams at one point in it. And the men's had 32. I think yeah. they might've equalized since then, but um, title nine from the early 1970s created this wonderful opportunity for women to have equal support in the collegiate sports system for for them and their sports and so Mm -hmm. women's soccer got a head start in the united states and produced so many players in the women's game in the late 70s and the 80s that became the base of the pyramid for the great players that were on the u.s women's national teams that Mm -hmm they've won four world cups now. So um, that's a huge thing. You know, it's interesting to me, even today, that the individual members of the US women's national team are better known in the United States than the men. And yet, the women have had a harder time with a professional women's league. Mm -hmm. They've had uh, a couple of leagues fail after three years. Uh, the current one, the NWSL, has been around longer, which is a good sign. Uh, and yet, it's not as stable 
as MLS is, mm -hmm. and, and mainly because their owners in that league weren't as wealthy as the billionaire owners of MLS who have been willing to lose money for a long time. Um, and so I certainly do hope that the NWSL continues to trend in the right direction, continues to add teams and sponsors and television broadcasters, and they're getting competition now from European domestic leagues because the new TV contract in England for the women's league is quite a bit higher than the NWSL. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing this development of women's club soccer around the world and they've got a ways to go, but like the, the promise is there. So FIFA's, I think, doing decently, not great, but decently with the development of the women's game. The, the next Women's World Cup is going to have 32 teams in it, which I think is good. Um, and I just hope the work keeps getting done and, and investment continues to happen. And obviously here in the U.S., I hope the the court case between the u.s women's players and the federation uh gets settled yeah. at a certain point because sure. um i i want to see you can't really move forward until that case gets mm -hmm. gets settled and, and and we'll see if they can do that let me ask you about something because every country has its own sport and culture and when i came to this country one of the things that stunned me up to be honest um i think it was here about a week and i went to a baseball game i think it was seattle mariners and anaheim angels and i literally nearly crapped my pants whenever all these fighter jets came over my head <laughs> and i'm like whoa did we get invaded and there's troops on the field and everything and then i hear people say I don't want politics in sport, but to me, American sports are dripping in politics. Uh, right. So um, what's your, what's your view on that? I mean, personally, I can totally see where you're coming from. Like, I don't feel like we need to hear the national anthem before uh, a sporting event in the United States. I think I'm fine with it. Like the global standard at like international games between countries. Yeah. I get that. I respect our military. I've had lots of, of military members and veterans in my family. Absolutely. Um, and yet I, I do, I, I have issues at times just with the amount of sort of nationalistic bordering mm. on jingoistic vibe mm -hmm. around American sporting events. Um, and so yeah, I, I, I think Bruce Arena was interesting, was one of the first people a couple of years ago to propose the idea that, that we stop playing the national anthem before uh, club sporting events in the United States. And uh, Bruce Arena is a very proud American, I yeah. know this, but like it's, it's something that uh, I wouldn't mind seeing go away. Was it always like that? Was it always played no. so ubiquitous? Because I, I thought it was sort of happened after 9 11, didn't it? Or, or no? Uh, before that, I think it was more mid 20th century okay. that it became accustomed to uh, to play the national anthem at the start of baseball games and, and football games, et cetera, in the US. But it wasn't like that before. And, mm. and so, um, you know, I, I think, especially in the NWSL, players have said recently, when you have half the team kneeling and half the team standing or with the, the U.S. women's national team as well, there's been a lot of discussion within their members about 
what they want to do. Um, but I think a lot of players on, on the U.S. women's national team for their club games would prefer not to have the anthem at all. Uh, last question or two here I want to ask. We talked about the respect, the newfound respect for American players. Uh, what about American coaches? Uh, obviously, we see with Jesse Marsh is doing, doing an unbelievable job and, and Ray Fleet being um, lauded for that. Um, but just a few years ago, you saw, to me, we talked about jingoism uh, with the coverage of Bob Bradley, which was, to me, bordering on bigotry. Um, if it wasn't, uh, you know, he used American football parlance, which is fine. We all use our own, you know, to, wherever we're from, our local you know, uh, um, lexicon. But it just seemed like he was ridiculed for what to me seemed harmless. Um, is people like Jesse Moore changing the perception of American coaches? Yes, is the answer on that. Um, and it's interesting when you look at Bob Bradley's situation, uh, with Swansea, where he wasn't for very long, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 70 some days. Um, you know, Bob actually is funny. He actually uses the word football all the time. I haven't heard Bob say the word Gentleman, by the way, forever. a lovely guy. I had him on the show before, a lovely guy. Yeah. Gentleman. Uh, and so, like, and, I, and by the way, I don't care what word you use to call the sport. We all love Nor the sport. I. So call, call it whatever you want. Exactly. Who cares? Um, but like, Bob definitely ran into some of that over, over in England. I think what was just as equally disappointing for me was he didn't get support from Swansea to even have a transfer window. And, and that made it really difficult. Um, Now, Jesse Marson, you know, even though he's definitely a protege of Bob and, and you know, hugely influenced by Bob, Jesse's got a different situation having been with the Red Bull organization for so Mm -hmm. many years now in New York, in Salzburg, now in Leipzig, and I think Jesse Marsh will get a lot more support from Red Bull yeah. than Bob Bradley ever did from Swansea uh, if things don't get off to a perfect start. So um, I think Jesse's a fantastic coach who has become sort of his own man using influences, not just from Bob, but from everyone else he's worked with, like Ralph Rangnick and, and mm-hmm. a bunch of others. And I had Jesse on my podcast and asked him like, do you think there are some things that Americans, American coaches like yourself bring to European soccer mm-hmm. that maybe aren't that widespread sure, in European soccer? Yeah. And, and Jesse's answer was um, arrogance. And he said it mm. with a laugh. So like he knows that like there's this sort of stereotype of American arrogance out there. But it's maybe not even arrogance so much as belief. Yeah, I want, yeah uh, I'm going to touch on that. That, that like that you know Jesse was you know when he was talking to me about this said like look I feel like you know we had Bayern Munich in Champions League in, in our group last year and I felt like on one day we could we could beat Bayern Munich mm-hmm. and a lot of people in Europe will tell you it's impossible for Salzburg to beat Bayern Munich but I thought we were capable of doing that and that's the type of, of belief that we're talking about, which, uh, which I think is a positive American trait. It's not, being, it's not being naive. It's, it's actually saying we can do this and getting past what sometimes is a year. A year European's a tough word because like there's so many different aspects of right. Europe, right? But like you do run into some like, negativity every once in a while of like this isn't possible and and i think there's that american thing 
that can be a useful thing in the soccer world. Well, I do think there's a difference between arrogance and confidence, right? So in yeah. my first exposure to this really with Americans, my other love is boxing, right? I would see in an, in an individual sport where you better be supremely confident in yourself, I would see American fighters coming over there with this brash confidence that our culture over there didn't allow athletes over there to be like, they wanted them to be reserved and humble. You get the other extreme where you get the toxicity of someone like Conor McGregor that goes way over top of it, that it really, to me, is a nice embarrassment. But that's the thing. Uh, I, I always, I, I felt that in America, they didn't just coach athletes physically, they coached them mentally, which was really, really, really important to believe in yourself. Um, and I feel that's something that Europeans have caught up on and saying and embrace sports science and saying, look, the mental side of this is absolutely vital. And, and people who have doubts in themselves, doubt, not all sandals who say they can't, they say can't, they're usually right. So I, I think there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. And I've always felt that American athletes are confident. Um, and, 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 I, and I like that. I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So, um, but they're never disrespectful. So um, I completely agree with that. And I think it is certainly something that's uh, symbolic of American athletes, that they are confident and, they, and rightly so, you know, but um, Grant, I would love to have you back. There's trillion topics I, I haven't got to. I don't want to take up too much of your time, buddy. I am so grateful for you doing this with me and for uh, picking your brain on some of these topics because I learn a lot from this and uh, I am a great admirer of your work. Thank you so much for your time and I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, bye.